Right, hello. Welcome to the NHSR podcast. Uh, I don't give the numbers anymore because they come out in a funny order. So we are NHSR. So if you are listening to the podcast and you don't know what NHSR is, we're a community of people in the UK. Uh, we use uh, open source data science methods in health and social care. We are particularly friendly towards R, hence the name, but we're also, we are like yeah, lots of other languages. We're great friends with the NHS PyCom community, and some of us indeed do, do use Python in our daily work, including myself. I am Chris Beely. I'm a data scientist. I work in uh, Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust, and I'm also the co-chair of the technical advisory group of NHSR. And with me today, we have another amazing community uh, that I've learned a lot from already. I only came across them quite recently, and I've already learned lots of valuable lessons, so I thought I would bring them to the podcast. We have the Turing Way with us, so I will just get them to uh, introduce themselves first, please. So Aaron, please, first. Hi, Chris. I'm a senior community manager at the Alan Turing Institute, and I work specifically on the EDON initiative, which is the Early Detection of Neurodegenerative Diseases, which is funded by Alzheimer's Research UK, and I'm a core member of the Turing Way community. Great, thanks. Uh, Anne, next, please. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having us. Um, I'm Anne. I'm the community manager of the Turing Way, uh, which means that I aim to steward contributions to uh, this book and to these guides that everyone will hear a bit more about in a second. Um, but I'm also working on issues related to sustainability and, and structures that we can um, create within both the core team and within the larger community in order to um, ensure the project's sustainability going forward. It's definitely been a learning process. Excited to, to speak more about it. Great. Thanks. Malvika. Again, thanks, Chris, for having us. I'm Malvika Sharan. I am a co-lead for the Turing Way, along with Dr. Kirsty Whitaker. I am a senior researcher at the Alan Turing Institute, where the project is hosted, and I am very much interested in open research and community building, which is where I'm currently working on, and the Turing Way is one of the important device in making that happen. Great. Thanks. Right. So let's kick off then. So the first question is, what was the need for the Turing Way community and how did it come about? So in any research, we want people to ensure highest quality of research outcomes. And it is very important that everybody understands what the responsibility in in achieving that quality is. Reproducibility is something that we believe is the lowest quality standard that we need to have, which we can simply define as when same analysis applied to same data set gives same result. Um, however, it is quite difficult to achieve that in practice because reproducibility is not something that you apply just one time. It is applied throughout the research process at all level of collaboration, at all level of publication, and even like thinking about beginning and design. So different people play a role in making the, achieving that reproducibility. And we wanted to create a process for everyone to understand what is their responsibility for reproducibility is and how they can make sure that they are doing research in a way that is achieving that quality. Uh, so Kirsty started this project in 2019 uh, with a small group of people who were already practicing reproducibility. And they started by writing chapters on reproducibility and different uh, processes and methods. And at this point, the project has expanded to five guides. So the need grew as we started to explore what the reprodu what reproducibility looks like in research across different domains. So the need is very simple. Can we all understand what reproducibility means, how we can achieve that in our own work and how we can do that in the global collaboration? Yeah, it's very interesting to me from from a health background because we sort of, to be honest, when I think of reproducibility, I sort of think of something else, but obviously the type of reproducibility you're talking about is very important. So the way 
listeners to the podcast will know we've been talking about reproducibility for, for, for quite a lot recently. We almost, we want to have the same results with the same data set, of course. But the, the other thing that we, that I think is even more important for us is we want to have a different data set and then be able to produce the results very rapidly. Because the thing about in healthcare, working in sort of frontline healthcare as I do, is that we have this sort of amazing huge stream of data constantly washing through. And up until fairly recently, people were doing very sort of manual processes, which would have two effects. It would, first, it would have the effect that you're talking about where you repeat the analysis on the same data and it's different because it was wrong one of the times or even maybe both times. But the second being that it's just, you know, it's, it's a horrible waste of time to, to, to do all those manual steps over and over again. So that's our particular interest as well in, in, in these sorts of methods. I have a background in bioinformatics. I understand the reproducibility or mean. And I, I believe that replicability is something that is more important because you might be collecting data from different, let's say, cancer patients. And you want to understand what is the marker uh, which is important in this data set. So I, I, I agree with you. I think the reproducibility that this audience might be interested in is reproducible workflow. Can we use the same analysis pipeline on different data set and kind of achieve the, the result that we are expecting to achieve at the end? Very interesting. And I also understand that it could be quite difficult when you're working on data with a lot of exceptions. Yes. I mean, one thing that we have actually is uh, in my particular context, I think a lot of contracts is we don't have access to the data anymore. So if we run a query against a database, that data is literally gone, you know, like because it's we, we, there's no copies of the data. So, yeah. But and I think the other thing about it as well, which I think is also probably important in the research context, is about kind of inspectability, isn't it? And kind of being able to 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 you know to justify what you've done and show the working out and all that kind of thing. Absolutely, I think open science, transparency. What can we show to people so they trust the result? But how can we be transparent so they can question when we are going wrong and correct us? But yeah, that's uh, definitely going to come up a bit more in the rest of the conversation. Yes, indeed. And that's a good segue, actually. Yes. So let's move on. So how would, how we, how would we define the Turing name? What, what is it? It's funny because I feel like the first fireside chat that was hosted in, at the end of 2021 began with this exact question of what exactly is the Turing way? And so the way that we tend to define it is usually like, couple of different directions. On one hand, it's a set of open source guides um, to make data science more reproducible, ethical, open and inclusive. And it began with this guide for reproducibility, right? With, well, with Dr. Kirsty Wilker with Kirsty. Soon over time and with the um, with the growth of, of the project and with the like in with the addition of Malvika into the team, it really expanded from this guide on reproducibility into five different guides that addressed everything from project design to a research communication to ethical research. And it's really become, you know, in many ways, a project that aims to make reproducibility too easy not to do by collecting these best practices in, in, in one place. And so, but over time, and, and we've really seen this in, in the growth of the community and the project over the course of the past year is how much communities of communities are beginning to form within the Turing way. So not only is it a set of open source guides, it's also the community that creates them. And we now have, you know, projects ranging from uh, translation of the guides as they are now into at least, I believe, five different languages. Uh, big shout out to the translation and localization team here. Um, there are now versions of, of the guides offered in Spanish, in French, in um, Japanese, I believe, uh, Korean. And I 
believe there was a Turkish team that just started over the summer, which means that now, you know, this book and this community that creates it is now reaching into spaces and becoming more accessible in, in areas that it previously wasn't able to reach. And so ultimately, kind of all of these things are coming together around the culture of communication, really trying to to change the culture of science um, through open practices, really all the way down. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's interesting, and we've had this same problem, in it, well, it's not a problem, it's good, I suppose, but a complexity is that you start off having a community that's about reproducible science. So that's what that's what it says on the tin, isn't it? That's what you started with. But actually listening to you talk, it's clear that you then kind of, like the scope of that, because you're talking about something like sort of ethics and governance and it actually, it's a lot bigger than it than it sounds, isn't it? And it kind of grows and grows and grows and, and you take in more and more kind of topics. And I suppose the question is like, where, how do you have a complete, you know, view of this without, you know, getting too large? That's something that's um, a really, really interesting point, I think, because in many ways, the, the, the different guides emerge naturally because in order to be able to talk about reproducibility or to enable it with a new team, you have to kind of go back to the beginning and think about your project design from the start. Um, not only that, you have to think about the, the communication af- afterwards, right, after um, a project's completion. The culture of collaboration that allows for open practices and reproducibility is so integral. And then ethics is kind of embedded throughout every single stage of this project. So it's interesting to see, to maybe find this tension between, you know, all of these different elements that contribute to reproducibility that, again, according to procedure, shall always say, you know, it's the aim is to make reproducibility too easy not to do. Um, through um, following best practices, through engaging with projects like the Turing Way. And so really as we kind of move forward or aim to, as we continue to grow as, an, as a project and as a community, really trying to, to stay true to the, to the core questions of, you know, what does reproducibility look like across um, different contexts, across different fields? Um, and how can we still continue to draw like best practices from all of, all of those in the process? So, funny how the, the Turing way, um, when I first joined the team, I, I realized that it wasn't maybe a single way of operating to enable reproducible research, but many ways of working. And the guides kind of tried to, to encapsulate um, many different aspects of that and hopefully will continue to grow. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned communication there. That kind of stood out for me. So how would you, how is it, because I get frustrated by communication, particularly with the health service. We're not it, we're not used to being transparent and we're not used to kind of justifying what we're used to just saying, well, we're the NHS and we do it this way and, and that's it. So how would you characterize what's different about this about this new way of communicating? It's really, I mean, it ranges across so many levels. Um, I'd say on one hand, you know, communication of research is not only, you know, aiming to, to create outputs that can um, communicate research for a wider audience and I'll plug um, a member of the core team of the Turning Way here, uh, Emma Karun, who really loves data papers uh, in the sense of being able to, to have research outputs or have output uh, about a project that can be communicated for a wider audience that are perhaps more accessible than a published paper. And examples like that, that I think people really and researchers tend to learn more about in informal contexts. But again, a project like the Turing Way aims to take those kind of informal, informal projects and informal parts of the research process um, in communication in this case, and really trying to to make them more explicit and accessible for folks that may not may not know. Alongside that, though, there's also you know everything from blogs to podcasts, like we're in now. Like there are so many different outputs and areas to be able to communicate research for not only the public but but also to each other. And I think 
the guide for communication really aims to kind of collect different ideas in this that direction, really embed it in the research process. Yeah, I think taking implicit good practice and making it explicit actually is one of the big things that I noticed when I discovered the chart. And that's, I think, something that we definitely could learn from. There's so much that we can do right, isn't there? And people are doing it, but it's not kind of written down anywhere. It's not necessarily like shared and, and brought up. Right. OK, so let's um, let's ask another question. So. The Turing Way, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, is, I mean, it is quite a phenomenal achievement, really, and um, in quite a short time as well. So it's, it's, it's a good example of what I would call the power of community. Um, so what advice can you give other people who want to sort of to grow and maintain communities? The Turing Way actually started as an open science community from the very beginning, and that gave us a really open space to invite members from different parts of open science. So folks who are not very much familiar with open science, open science is a collection of practices that you apply in the area of open source software, open data, open access publications, citizen science. These are just few. There are se several, many of those. So we started with this open license, which meant that anybody can freely read, reuse, distribute, modify, come back and join us and build on everything that we are writing. And we also identify ourselves as a project, which is always a work in progress. We work in data science. Knowledge is constantly evolving. We can never be, never be complete. So we're not writing a book that has a completion date that allows us to open up space for different people to come in and define what reproducibility or data science best practices mean for them. So the, the power of our community is in the diversity that we have. We embed equity, diversity, inclusion at the very core of the work that we do. And that allows us to work with international audience. So when we say best practice, we're not saying best practice because we at the Turing Institute are defining it as best practice, but really work with people from all around the world uh, involving them in these kind of conversations so they can define best practices that works for them. One of the things that you would notice is that the Turing way is very meta practice, as in like we don't really define our practices in a domain specific way, meaning that anybody from any field should be able to come and learn about that and think about what that looks like in their own domains. We do have case studies and personal stories that allows people to build relatability. So all of these are a few examples in addition to all Anne was talking about that we have lots of community events where people can synchronously talk to each other because we are online. It's, it's very important for us to build that sense of belonging so people know who to go to if they have any problem. We have uh, also lots of communication channel. Chris, uh, your question around communication, making implicit explicit is one of the ways that we make sure that everything that we do People have some ways to go and find out about it. And we also openly ask for feedback, which means that people can come and tell us when we have not really captured some of the knowledge that they think is important in data science. So there's so many open doors that I feel like people will identify one that resonate with them and come in. So I think that's the lesson that I want to give is create multiple channels for way, ways that people can interact with you accept that the power is distributed in data science community, meaning that there is not one single decision maker when we talk about best practices in general, and also uh, bringing humility that we don't know enough. We need to learn it from the people. So yeah, that's definitely what we try to implement in the Turing Way community building. Yes, I think that multiple channels thing, I think that's something that 
that's something else I think that I sort of observed about the Turing Way early on, and that's something that I want to bring to NHSR as well. Is that we sort I feel like we need to be everywhere really. That's what I want to be, and and I also want to meet people where they are. That's another thing that I worry about that will end up just being a sort of cadre of geeks kind of communicating in, in in code. And I really want to make sure that you know that all levels are kind of represented. So I'm going to ask you like a specific question now, just to just to help people listening. So I think the big problem that we have in where in my community is that we have loads of really eager people and knowledgeable people and they're all doing amazing work and they're all out there and I know they're out there because I've spoken to them. But one of the problems that we have is that people find it really difficult to engage with the community kind of in their everyday lives, in their working lives, because there's kind of pressure from other sources. And then the people, you know, their managers and the people in their organization don't necessarily kind of value that kind of work and that kind of you know the sort of the things that go alongside you know the the transparency and the methods and all that kind of stuff so do you have any sort of specific advice about how we can kind of how we can sell this idea of community practice to people who were not bought into it in many ways this so this question of how can we advocate or how can we can we sell this notion of community-led practices within organizations is something that's really in many ways, core to the Turing Way as a project and as it emerged, because we really aim to connect that to acknowledgement and to public spaces. So I'll plug a certain example of the resource here, which is in our uh, community handbook, or which is a, a record of contributions. And so that's a place where you know people who are involved in the Turing Way as a project or as a book are able to write personal anecdotes, projects that they've been involved in, chapters that they've written. And we've really seen, for example, early career researchers uh, use a, and link to directly this contributor record to advocate, for example, promotions within their institution or proof of um, contribution to a project. And really, we really find that these spaces for public recognition, um, where folks have ownership over what they share and what they have worked on, is really, really, really integral to the project. And another example that I'll give here is that of the contributor bot, which is a kind of bot that we've customized within the Turnway repository to really ex- acknowledge um, all the different types of contributions that people make to the project, everything from fixing bugs and typos to, to contributing ideas, to writing content, to um, being in, to giving talks, um, being a part of events, being a part of translation, all of these different ways of engaging, having public spaces for that to be recognized and for them to be acknowledged is, I think, really key in addressing this question of, you know, how do we advocate for it within our institutions? Um, because oftentimes, I think there's a lot of imperceptibility or not a lot of knowledge of what happens within these computational communities, what happens within within open source communities for those that are looking from the outside and in uh, other professional environments. And so the more that we can make, again, that implicit and that labor, you know, open, accessible, and ultimately explicit for folks that may not understand the process, or that that process can can make it easier to advocate for more recognition of that work. Yeah, one of the nice things about kind of GitHub and, and that way of working, of course, is that it does do that for you, doesn't it? So if someone's written a chapter or someone's done a typo or all this kind of thing. So I've got my little picture. There's a couple of really big repos that I love, and I've made the most tiny piddling changes to them and i do feel really proud you know to have helped you know with something um you know as big and important as that so that's um yeah so that's really nice okay so 
we're sort of talking about data science generally, and obviously the NHSR community is a, is a, we're kind of interested in kind of health uh, type stuff. So what are the differences between the best practice in health type data science as compared with other kind of more mainstream types of data science? Um, yeah, I think in terms of data science, you would hope that the best practices are, are, are the same. I mean, we're talking about reproducibility and trying to be open and, and you know, can you containerize an environment? I think that's just how it should be across any type of data science. I think when you look at health, though, you do need to make some different considerations. Um, so for a start, you are using patient data, sensitive data. Um, and so there are ethical considerations immediately. Um, and you need to consider what, you know, we're doing some data science for patient data. Why are we doing it? Who will benefit? Who will, who could it harm? And things like that. So I, I don't think it's a case of best practices, but maybe just how you consider how you're going to do some data science. And of course, um, because we're using patient data and using NHS data, you need to, you're probably working in different kinds of environments. So you're not working out in the open. There's this kind of open as possible, but closed as necessary um, philosophy in, when you're working with health data. So that usually comes down to something like a trusted or a secure research environment. Um, so I've, I've spent about 10 years at the Sale Data Bank and you know, they've got a, platform, a, a trusted uh, research environment there. And you just log in, everything's secure. It's got ISO cyber security essentials and things like that. And it means that it's basically a lockdown environment. So when you do that, you need to make sure that you can configure it properly. And that's when it becomes quite difficult technically because you can't just be relying on um, SaaS services. They're usually hosted services. So it's not just GitHub, usually a hosted GitLab. Um, and that can that can give a few headaches just to get around. But once you've got there and you're set up and you've, you've got that environment, um, that's when it's safe that you can use patient data. And so and you've agreed data access agreements and things like that. So you know, those things that you would have to consider um, if you want to do research with, with healthcare data, you, you, you have to use, do a bit of self-hosting and make sure that you, you why, why are you doing this research and have you got access to do this and, and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, just to, just to say, I don't think it's a best practice thing. I just think you're working in a different environment usually and is a little bit more painful, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I think another sort of pain point is kind of... Um so I've done some projects that have open data. And what that means is you can just put the data on GitHub and people can just look at it and mess around with it. And, you know, that's much more, whereas the thing that you're talking about is only certain people will be allowed to go and, and, and do certain things at certain times. So how do you kind of get that kind of transparency and that kind of collaborative spirit, do you think, away from that just ability to just kind of just share just share a data set? I think even with open health data sets, um, you, know, you need to be really careful about if you want to do a piece of research and um, say the NAC or ADNI data sets I'm working at in dementia, they're open for researchers to use. But um, I think you still need to keep in mind what kind of research would you be doing on, on those data sets. So those um, participants, they would have agreed consent to their data to be used, but you should check exactly why you're doing it. You don't want to do things maliciously and so on. So I think even with open data, there, there are considerations to be made because it's someone's healthcare data. But in, you know, in terms of collaboration, I think, you know, going back to, to what Anne was saying and building the community, I think I don't think that's too much different from other data science communities. If, if it's in health, you know, you, you're probably more aware of why you're doing your research and, and things like that. And I just think if you can maybe have cross-knowledge um, workshops and things like this, seminars, and you're working openly within a trusted research environment, I think that's the key way to, to drive collaboration in those areas. Um, you know, you can have things like Python seminars, R seminars. Well, I'd love to see 
more interoperability seminars because there are people doing, um, I think you mentioned that you have a Python community as well as an HSR community. Yeah. So how can you bring those two communities together and, and learn from each other? Because, you know, for me, healthcare has been, a, healthcare research has been a big part of my career and you don't want to waste efforts if you can learn from another group. So I think bringing those groups together and being interoperable are, are key ways to do that. Yes, indeed. Interoperability. It's, it's, it's been a buzzword for a long time, hasn't it? And we haven't cracked it really, have we? Yeah. I think I really want to bring the, the, the R and Python communities together because we are so kin in terms of our kind of, you know, our philosophy and, our, and like what we're trying to achieve and how we're trying to achieve it. But at the same time, people, I think, like to be in a community of people who all speak the same language kind of thing. So I go do go over to the Python Slack sometime and we'll occasionally kind of chat to people or, you know, see what's going on. But it's a different feeling to how it is in R because it's it is there's a sort of there's a sort of almost like a not a private language, there's like a shared language, isn't there? There's lots of overlapping I mean we were talking just before we press record, weren't we, about this idea that actually there are lots of overlapping communities, aren't there? Which all share they all share something and then they all have differences as well. And it's about how do we bring those together so we have all these different communities. We have communities that focus on just, you know, one language. We have sort of general, you know, just the whole R community. I'm very proud. I, I'm an R user mainly, and I'm very proud of the R community. I think it's very inclusive. It's very diverse. It's, I think from what, I mean, I haven't been in that many technology communities, but from what I'm here, it's actually one of the most sort of positive technology communities that there is. But then we have more specific ones, like we have the Turing Way, which is looking at a specific sort of aspect of reproductive research. We have the NHSR community, which is looking at kind of particular uses for data. And we have all these different, you know, spans, all these overlapping. So how do we bring these communities together and how do we exchange knowledge between them? You know, kind of how can we do that in the, in the best way? I think the Turing Way actually gives a lead by example on this because there's lots of great advice on how to conduct data science in you know, best practices and, and so on. And if you look throughout the Turing Way chapters, there are examples of the same thing they're talking about, but you're given a Python and an R example side by side. And so you can really see that, you know, if I wanted to engage more with a certain community and I'm used to R and I'm, I'm more used to R, I use it for 10 years, I know a bit of Python, but I'm, I definitely don't speak parcel tongue or anything like that. But, you know, if you can just see examples side by side and just see, actually, this isn't scary. We can learn a lot from each other and it can be quite seamless. I think that's a good way of doing it. And the Turing Way isn't, Great chapters of you know, dual language examples, if you like. And I, I think it's interesting because you've got companies now, and well, you, you can speak up Project Jupiter for a start, you know, the Jupiter, Julia, Python, and R. And so they've always had that interoperability in mind to bring people together. And it's interesting now that R Studio are, are going to be calling themselves Posit soon. And it's clearly a, a serious attempt to reach out to different communities other, other than R. So hopefully, We'll see just by way of these companies, you know, the software that we love to use day in, day out, that will help us work together a bit more from the offset. And, you know, Quarto, again, is, is another science communication tool that we can use that can be used across all of those languages. But I think it just, I, I think we just need to try and bring each other together and learn from each other. I, you know, we, we're definitely not, you're the Python people and you're the R people. I think it'd be great to have something like hackathons, like a repro hack where you can see a piece of work that's been done in Python and can you work together and say, can we reproduce this in R and vice versa? And then you can learn about, okay, I, d I didn't realize there was that kind of philosophy in Python. Maybe compared to R, you've got vectorization is really heavy in, in R and so on. So I think just seeing people's work out in the open and bringing them together and saying, 
can we learn from each other? And, you know, in the spirit of reproducibility, can we, can we do it through that lens? Make sure that, you know, when we learn from Python or R, we'll try and get the same results. And I think as well, it, it's good to have um, people that are dedicated to doing this in your community. So you mentioned that it's quite hard to get to sell this kind of community practice. And at the Turin, um, we have community managers. So Anne and myself are community manager and Malvika was a community manager at the Turin way before. And so you know, we're interested in trying to bring together and listen to the, the needs of the community. And where I am at Edom, for example, there are people that use Python and R. So we want to try and make sure that all of our work is in, interoperable and then we learn from each other all the time. And, and you know, my role is, to, is dedicated to doing that kind of thing. So, I, you know, I definitely think having people like that in post is good. In the NHS, if you have a huge Python and a huge R group, I can really see space for people to just to be thinking about that. That's their role. How can we get the best out of these both communities, not duplicate work? Yes, I've often fantasized about having a head of Python and a head, a head of R in the NHS. I would have thought, given our size, that would be a no-brainer, but it's not happened just yet. And if NHS England listens to this and they want to make me head of R, then uh, my DMs are open. Um, yeah, I think that's the thing. I think you've summarized it quite well, really. So I think we've sort of brought together the practice and the resources very well, haven't we? But it's And we are starting to bring the people together. I think it's harder to bring people together, isn't it, than it is hard to bring technology together. So, for example, we're just about to have our, well, not just about, in November we've got our conference coming up. And for the first time, it's going to be Python and R, um, which is really exciting. It's the first time we've done it. But it's still Python, you know, it's still it's Python and R. It's not kind of, it's not one thing. And we're trying to, as I say, kind of make make one identity but have separate identities or, or something. I don't know. I don't know quite how it all works really. I feel like we're all on the, this is what I always say, is that we're all on the same team, aren't we? And I feel like we're on the same team as the Turing Way as well. But I don't know kind of where that team is or how to characterize it or how to get them all talking at the same time in the same place. It's It's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's funny how you say, I love how you brought in this people element because as Aaron was speaking, I was going in, as you spoke, I was going, oh, well, this is exactly where I think a project like the Turing Way comes in. Rather that, you know, the Turing Way has always defined itself as a socio-technical project with its aim to change the culture of science in a really, you know, big, big sky thinking sort of way. But people enable that culture change, um, not just tools, right? And so I loved what Aaron was saying about the, a repo hack where folks from you know, the R community and the Python community can come together. Um, in many ways, I think the, the Turing Way community calls and places like the Book Dash, which, which is kind of like our biannual edit thon for the book, is really a place where people from very different perspectives, very different you know, um, focuses, research, uh, expertise come together to be able to make those bridges between computational communities, between disciplines, between ways of thinking about um, reproducibility, about open science, and those happening conversations that happen in real time in these community spaces, they of course also happen in long um, GitHub issue threads, right? And so trying to create as many spaces of, as possible for that sort of cross-pollination is really, really, really key. Um, but then on another hand, Kind of wanted to add something maybe from um, a previous experience before joining uh, the Turing before joining the Allen Turing Institute, which is that this question of interoperability between um, computational communities really extends across the entire open ecosystem. I come from a background of studying open source communities like Wikipedia or OpenStreetMap or 
um, was involved in the open source investigative journalism world. And, you know, there's a lot of lack of interoperability between all of these different open spaces. And we're right now in this period where open ways of working and open source practices are really becoming, getting so much more visibility um, within the broader technology sector, within, you know, broader spheres, spheres within government, really all across the world. And the real question is, can we connect across these different ways of thinking about openness across the entire ecosystem? And, you know, it's almost like an embedded set of, you know, networks, right? Where you have, you know, computational communities that are connecting with each other, but there's also, you know, open science connecting with open data and open government and all of these connections within institutions has always really started with you know, people having conversations first. And maybe the last thing that I'd want to add in here is really maybe drawing out that tension that you mentioned, Chris, about, uh, you know, aiming to connect these different groups, but also wanting to maintain separate identities up outside of that. And there's a notion of the, the pluriverse, right? A notion of like, maybe, yes, having enough space, enough room within um, different computational communities to have these different approaches of finding a way to connect between them rather than to try and make them the same thing. Because that culture of plurality is really integral to be able to, you know, change this kind of monoculture of, of science as we know it now. And really, yeah, I think that that's uh, at least a, in my own experience, but also talking to folks within the, the Turing Way community, that pluriverse approach where we leave room for difference is really tied to questions of you know, diversity and, and inclusion and leaving space for folks to bring in different perspectives as well. But it's always a tension between you know wanting to you know create the space to be able to combine those different perspectives and but also not wanting to turn them into one culture or one way of working or one computational community. But also at the end, it's really about signposting, right? Like we can create all these channels that have been told oh, there are so many channels that I'm so unsure of which one to join. So sometimes it, it may backfire if we are not signposting clearly, if we are not creating opportunities for people to ask or just to acknowledge that, oh, I would love to engage, but I just don't know where to begin. So what are those initial steps? Uh, like as simple as I think some of the workshops that have been extremely successful is a beginner's workshop to use GitHub getting people to do that first pull request and the joy that they have and the Chris, uh, the same joy that Chris, you were talking about, you know, seeing your face in this big project that you have done, uh, you've made the difference or your contribution was counted. I think that's very empowering. And a lot of time in the Turing where we want people to use that space as a playing field. So come in and, you know, practice what you might want to take back to your community. You may not be doing this, but you can learn from this community and also creating this cross-community exchange. So a lot of work that Anne and I have been doing in the last uh, months have been about fireside chat, reaching out to different communities, bringing the same conversation that we all are having separately and having them out in the open. Uh, not because we have a solution, but just to acknowledge that all of us are exploring the same problem and answer may emerge in one place that might be interesting for others. So yeah, very much the theme is make implicit explicit. Yeah, pull request is almost it's almost the sort of the, the, the building block of the whole thing, isn't it really? I've taught so many people to make pull requests on call. People are on Slack and they say, Oh, I've got this thing and I say, Well make a pull request and they say I don't know how. So I ring them up and talk them through it. And then they're off and then they're making pull requests all over the place. And it's so amazing. And it's it's really incredible to think how much 
you know, they can contribute just from that, just that. And it's, you know, I think it's so mysterious, isn't it? That's the thing people are like, well, I, you know, and it's not, it's a strange phrase as well, isn't it? Pull request. It just sounds very odd. Remember I saw a clip on Fox News once where they said what a pull request and it was just kind of hilariously wrong. But yes, it's very, it's very powerful. I think the other thing we've been talking about that I thought was really interesting was this idea about multiple kind of spaces and multiple communities. I think I do find the culture of open source. I don't know very much about the culture of open source, but I do find it fascinating. I think the thing about like I would, the opposite, I think, is Apple. So Apple products all work together because they say so. So Apple are sitting in the center of this massive sphere of technology and they all and that's why people buy them, because they all, you know, the laptop and the, it all works absolutely perfectly. Um, and then we're on the other end of that spectrum where anyone can just do what they want. Um, so there was a big change to the kind of the Linux boot system and some person said, oh, I hate that. So they just made a new one and off they went and it, cre- and it creates a sort of fragmentation and this kind of chaos. And it's our job, isn't it, to kind of harness it. And I think that's great, the chaos. I think is great. But it's our, we have to like harness it and bring it back. And I think cult- a culture, I think, is the word, isn't it? That's a good, I think that's what Anne said, isn't it? I think that is what we share with the PyCom community, actually, is, is a culture. And that's what we share with you as well. And it's not really about writing code, not really, because you can be part of the culture without knowing how to write code. It's about transparency and collaboration, and it, it's more that than actually than sort of tech, per se. I, I love that example. I love chaos. I really do love chaos because, as you said, you know, innovation happens in chaos, but you need people to recognize where this innovation is happening or where energy is being wasted and how can we actually bring them together I definitely think in NHS or in the context of health data, interoperability is so important. And because all these services are being owned by the giants who are not willing to share the code, so you don't really know how to use their API. Is there even an API to pull data from? And a lot of work that I know NHS are and a lot of coders, clinicians in NHS are doing is creating these small snippets of code that draws data from the, where they need and and gain insight from that. In reality, what should have happened is that NHS is this amazing interoperable community where all technology talk to each other and the doctor have insight into patient data in the right moment. And that two doctors who've never met still know the same information about the same patient that they are treating. So I think that has not happened, which is why open source technology is so great. Because people take the power in their own hand as user and they say, this is what my personal need is and this is how I'm going to solve it. So rather than us giving them the solution, we need to give them the skills so they are able to do it. Uh, Because we just cannot change this non-interoperability problem in a day. No, indeed. I I, I mean, I've said on the podcast, I've said many times all over the place, the NHS needs to get a lot stricter on interoperability. A lot of companies that I'm not going to name on the podcast are not playing fair and that we are giving them a lot of public money and well there's a thing actually someone i saw on twitter actually just recently i tweeted it um saying there's some talk actually in america at the moment apparently about about legislating for interoperability about saying if we're going to give you american tax dollars you are going to be interoperable and if you're not we are going to rip the contract up um i will find that i'll dig that tweet out and i'll put it in the show notes um Right, let's round off. So, what are some of the biggest achievements of the Turing Way community to date? The Turing Way community has really grown so much over the course of the past, gosh, is it more than three years now? Four years now, almost. Um, and it really began with, you know, a core set of, of folks um, 
I was no more than a ten, not ten or so people, and now we have over 350 contributors um, listed in the GitHub repository. So the number of people who have contributed to the Chinese has grown, um, which means that the number of people that feel a sense of belonging, that contribute best practices, they're able to contribute their expertise has grown as well. And that is something that they aim to bring forward. But also the Turingway has, funnily enough, also made its way into other spaces of culture change within our societies, um, into policy um, advocacy within the city of London, um, within uh, reports about the use of data and health context. I will plug in most recently um, in a report that came out of Oxford in early 2021, and I just joined the team, about the use of health data in, in, in different contexts and how community-led practices can make that easier. Oh, sorry to interrupt. You're talking about the Goldacre report, aren't you? Of course I am. That's where I found the Turing Way. That's the whole reason why we're having this conversation. I was reading it and I was like, oh, that sounds good. I'm going to Google it. And here I am. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we, exactly those contexts, I think, means that the Turing Way is starting to grow into spaces that we weren't previously in and therefore having more visibility within our larger societies and also ways of working and, and projects and like. And so the real question then is, you know, as we grow into these spaces now, I'll pass it on to Malvika and Aaron here as well, is that, you know, on one hand, you have these markers of, achieve, of achievement being the Golden Age Report, being um, cited in policy across the UK and different contexts around um, around the world in many different research environments and universities. But you also have the achievement of being able to say that you've empowered researchers, whether it's early career researchers who may not necessarily have um, institutional power in the research environments, whether it's um, folks in research infrastructure roles who may not necessarily be uh, recognized as researchers within their teams. Um, I think being able to bring these folks together and really say, hey, you have expertise, you have so many things to contribute to how we think about data science and how we think about um, the use of data in different contexts. Here's a place where you can put that knowledge. Um, here's a place where you can collaborate with other folks that are like you. Here's a place where you can, you know, be, your knowledge can be interoperable with other fields and other areas of expertise. Um, is I think one of the biggest biggest achievements of the tournament as a as a community, alongside, of course, all of the places that it finds itself these days. Yeah, I think the Goldacre review was was a big deal for us, and um, it's, it's great that it got in this and. Especially being a health data scientist, it was great to see that as well. Um, yeah, no, I think um, you know, it's definitely had a big impact. So the two ways is cited quite highly now. So we're in twenty different uh, peer-reviewed publications and, and on other online publications, and um, we're being referenced and used as a framework for other um, open communities. So um, Fair Cookbook, uh, Good Research Ho- uh, Code Handbook, and things like that. So. It's definitely making a big impact. Um, and, you know, I hope we can continue to do that. And the fact that we have, I think it's about 450 members now um, that are due to the Turing Way. But each new person that comes into the Turing Way, they can go off and have ripples in, in other communities that they are in. So I think for us, you know, bringing people on, no matter how, um, if they haven't got any experience with GitHub at all, then, you know, doing an easy first pull request label that we have in, in the Turing Way, they can go off and then just, you know, wax lyrical, hopefully, about how they can do things a bit differently in their community. So, and you, you see that all the time. So we have um, weekly co-working spaces, collaboration cafes, and you can just see people, as you said, you mentioned before, Chris, you talk someone through a pull request and suddenly they're doing it all the time. And so you can see that happening within the space of a two-hour uh, co-working call in the Turing Way. So you see it at that kind of level. Um, 
So yeah, it's, it's been great for, great for me, you know, first year working with the team. And I've definitely seen an impact in the way I work as well. The last thing that I'm, I'm going to actually mention is that I, I talked about how domain agnostic the Turing way is, but because people across different domain have been using it and they are very interested in making the resources relatable, we are planning to um, design sort of a practitioner hub whenever that happens, if we get funding for it, where we can bring these domain experts together, get them to create case studies that actually their communities can relate with, as well as think about how they can exchange knowledge in across their domains. For example, we were uh, recently cited by Energy Systems Catapult, and there is this strong need for skill building in energy system in general, and they want to build case studies. But we also work with some health experts where they want to think about, you know, what would this base, this, these best practices would look like if we adopted in health. But we also want them to talk to each other. Can we learn from health and apply that in energy system and vice versa? So there's quite a lot of space for that. Um, there's another project that I am currently working with, which is NASA TOPS, uh, which is transformed to open science. NASA is investing 40 million uh, for next five years to open up all their data and code. And it has come in the perfect time because Biden administration has passed this policy that all public funded projects should open up their data and code. So that's an opportunity where we are bringing in the Turing Way knowledge that they can probably pull together into either training resources or to make case for within their own organization. And similar interactions and collaboration we're having with different organizations, the impact is very hard to assess in those because it's just very much trust-based collaboration that we are doing. But we hope that it will create some more evidences for other organizations to adopt best practices in open, reproducible, ethical research. Right, yes. So, the Turing Way has achieved an incredible amount, basically. So what I'm hoping this podcast will achieve is telling people who are listening to it, who, who are in the NHSR community, that you exist and that we have a lot to learn from you. And hopefully we can look at ways of working together more in the future. So I think that's all I want to say today. So I will um, thank the guests very much for coming on. It's very inspiring to hear about it. As I say, I've already learned a lot from the community. So it's really nice to hear more about it. So I would like to also thank Tom Jemmett, who will edit the podcast. We've not really had any disasters today, actually, so I don't think it should be too difficult for him. But I'm sure he'll do a beautiful job, as always. If you do have any questions or comments about this podcast, or if you have any general questions or comments about R and data science or any of the things that we talk about, uh, you can email nhs.rcommunity at nhs.net. And we'll see you all uh, at the next podcast. So I'll just thank my guests once again, and we'll leave it there.